open it up to Acts 25. One of the distinctives of Calvary Chapel or our church is that we believe that all of God's word is necessary so that you can know God fully and know what his intent is for you in this life. Because that's what the Bible tells us. And so therefore, we teach verse by verse through it in its entirety. We don't pick and choose or skip. It's all good. It's all necessary. So we go through it all. And we're going through the book of Acts right now. Last week, we saw the beginning of, if you guys are familiar with your Bibles at all, what ended up being a a two-year confinement of uh, Paul in Roman imprisonment in Caesarea, followed by another two years of confinement in Rome. So with travel time between those two places included, basically five years of being in Roman captivity, as we're going to see in the remaining chapters of Acts. And I think you would agree, if you've been tracking through Acts with us, that this is quite a different season of ministry for Paul than his previous 20 plus years of basically spontaneously and and freely just being able to go wherever the Lord led him to share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? He gets saved and then the Lord kind of whisks him into this season of just like hardcore mission work, going from place to place, preaching the gospel. And now all of a sudden you have this different season that one could probably see as being somewhat distracting or a discouragement in that that freedom that he once had is completely gone right now. But over this time period, we also see this five years of captivity. We see Paul continue to show great trust in faith in God, despite his circumstances, through his faithfulness to serve the Lord, no matter where he's at, no matter what his circumstances are. And there's two ways he really does that. One of them we're already seeing and we're going to see today in that he's faithful to preach the good news to whoever the Lord brings in front of him. And the second thing that we don't see in here, but we know as we go through the rest of the Bible, is that he was also faithful to take every opportunity he had to encourage other believers. And that while he was in this Roman captivity, he also wrote his epistles or the letters to the believers in Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, or the the church of Colossians. And then his friend Philemon, all Bible books that he wrote while he was in Roman captivity with that intent to encourage other believers. Paul basically being someone that received the promises of God that had been made to him up to this point, as we just saw recently in Acts 23, God reiterate to him or Jesus personally come to him and reiterate to him is Paul. Be encouraged. I'm with you still. You're doing everything right. I'm using what you're doing, whether you see it or not. And I still got more work for you. So he received those promises God gave him. And here's the kicker. He believed him. And what that allowed him to do is use those promises to interpret his circumstances or see them from the right perspective, which is a great example for us to follow in our own lives. As you've heard me say it before, the thoughts you hold on to will most certainly determine the future you head into. Okay? Because here's the thing. If I believe God and his word... There is always going to be a great future right in front of me, whether it looks that way or not. All right, because the circumstances don't always look great. But based off of what God has promised me in some way or another, they will be for my benefit, which will help me keep my focus on God and, and see my life from the right perspective, which is his perspective, which will allow me to faithfully 
let the work of God happen in my life and through me because my focus is where it should be and I'm not caught up or distracted by those things that I don't understand. Amen? That's what we see in the life of Paul and we're going to continue to see that today. So we finished up last week, Acts 23, 24, and we saw these religious leaders, they bring their accusations against Paul to the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea and Paul basically just shares the truth in defense because he had nothing to hide. And the Felix, the governor of Rome, can't find him guilty of anything. He chooses not to release him because he basically wants to wait until the Roman uh, commander, uh, Lysias, who sent Paul the Felix, uh, comes to kind of tell him what happened. And while in custody, Felix, who it, the Bible says had some knowledge, had actually good knowledge of the gospel, he asked Paul to come and explain more about Jesus to him and his wife, which Paul jumps on that opportunity. Unfortunately, we don't see Felix, even though he's alarmed by what he heard, make that declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. So best we know, he he didn't get saved. But nevertheless, he decides to leave him in custody. And then we see this change of leadership in Caesarea where uh, Porcius Festus basically takes over as Roman governor. That's where we left off. So let me pray. And then we're going to pick it up in chapter 25. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just... We want to be ready for what it is you want to say to us through your word, Lord. We're not here to see a man and hear wisdom from man. We're we're here to hear from our living God that has given us his word, inspiring everyone, everything that's penned in here under your inspiration. And you've preserved it through the ages so that we knew would have everything we need to know about you and how to know you personally, and how to know your plans for our life. Things that we question all the time. What's our purpose? Why are we here? Where can I find the contentment and the satisfaction I'm looking for? All these answers and and so much more, they're all in here, Lord. And so we want to listen with enthusiasm or, or, or readiness, expectancy, so that we can get those answers we seek, Lord, which can only come from you. So prepare us for what it is you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says in chapter 25, verse 1, Now three days after Festus had arrived, arrived in the province, this is the new leader that's sent there by Caesar to be governor over this area of Israel, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning on an ambush to kill him on the way. So this new governor, new Roman governor, arrives in Caesarea. Festus actually being somebody that history tells us wasn't that bad of a leader from human standards. He was a lot better than Felix was in that he wasn't really corrupt. But shortly after arriving in Caesarea, Festus decides to take a trip to Jerusalem, arguably the most important city that was kind of under Roman rule in that area, probably just to kind of introduce himself as the new governor, the new leader of the area, and also to kind of see how things were going there. And even though more than two years had passed since Paul was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, we can see that the Jewish religious leaders' bitterness towards him, it didn't subside at all because the first thing they do in meeting this guy is, hey, that guy Paul, yeah, we've got issues with him. And we want you to bring him to Jerusalem or send him to Jerusalem so we can 
in a sense, try him or, or deal with him the way we want to. Um, and it wasn't to face a fair trial. They made, as it's made clear here is basically they had a plan to secretly kill him. All right. Now, what we saw in Acts 23 was that it was some zealots or fanatical Jewish people that were behind that plot to try to kill Paul. But now we see it's the so-called religious people that are actually the ones that are aiming to assassinate or kill him, which brings up a good thing for us to see in that any religion that isn't truly following God, it can be a dangerous thing. All right. Because without the one and only true God in his word to lead people, inevitably people will do things contrary to what God says is good and right. And they're susceptible to being led by their flesh, which is susceptible to being led by the enemy whose goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. And what you see throughout history, and even today, is that in a lot of the false religions... Evil things being done by so-called religious people. And in extreme cases, extreme cases, those religious people teaching their followers to kill people in God's name. And Christianity isn't, or I should say, wrong misunderstandings of Christianity aren't immune to this either. Because all throughout history, there's certainly been corruption within the Christian church where the leaders were teaching people to do things or they were doing things. And it obviously was contrary to what God said was right and good in his word. And that is why the word of God needs to be the foundation of any church that's truly seeking God. Because this is what keeps us grounded in what is good and right. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, this also shows us that Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea was, in fact, divine protective custody or even though it may have looked like a bad thing from the outside him being in prison god was using it for his good and benefit because he was protecting him from these jewish leaders that were dead set on killing him all right which is a good example for us to take note of note of because i often wonder how many of those situations that at the time feel undesirable or like a hassle or or something that basically is something I'd rather not be going through in life. They seem like a bad thing at the time, but they're actually blessings in disguise in that God is using those very things that are inconvenient for me to protect me from something that I'm unaware of. Maybe that flat tire, Stephen, you had on the way to work last week was protection from that auto accident that God didn't want you to get in. Or that delayed flight was protection from a plane going down. I don't know. I mean, we might not know till heaven. But one thing we can be sure of is it's already been said in Romans eight twenty eight. God's working all things for our good. Even the so-called things that seem bad. So that in this instance, we see that happening with Paul. Now, here's the other thing. And seeing how Paul's accommodations, according to Acts 23, weren't that bad. In that they're keeping him at King Herod's, who we're going to meet later in this chapter, Oceanfront Palace, and how his captivity really wasn't that hard in that it was kind of like witness protection in that they were holding him, but they allowed him the freedom to have visitors to come and meet with him and tend to his needs. Seeing that, it would also seem that God is using this season maybe as a time of rest 
and replenishment that he's forcing upon Paul after 20 plus years of really intense, difficult missionary work. And prior to some hard work that's going to come after the season of captivity too, that if you know your Bible is going to happen to Paul. And this is right in line with what God tells us is important to him. Many of you guys that have been here for more than five and a half years or whatnot, that knew our last pastor, um, when he got called to go from here to Kauai, I know a lot of us thought he was just going on vacation, but um, no, he, he really didn't know. They, they didn't know why the Lord was calling him there at the time, but they felt very strongly. There was a lot of confirmations. That's where they were supposed to go. And in hindsight, before the Lord called him to plant a church in Germany, he would look back and say that that was a forced season of rest. Didn't mean that they weren't doing anything. He was still serving on staff as a pastor somewhere or whatnot, but it was a season where they could, in a sense, just get their relationship right with God, which is always a priority with God. First and foremost, that we're right where we should be with him so we can serve out of that relationship. Amen? We need to always remember that the minister is more important than the ministry to God. None of us is indisposable in the fact that God doesn't need us to do anything. He uses us for our benefit. Because God, through the ministry, does great work in us. And we get to see him do great work, which is fun to be a part of. Amen? But there's a key verse in Mark 3.14 that you guys need to remember this. Because when he's calling his 12 apostles, it says he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, number one, be with him And he might send them out to preach. The priority for his disciples, for his followers, which all of us are that placed our faith in Jesus, is to be with Jesus. To have a relationship. A close relationship with your Savior who saved you and and brought you into that relationship with God through the forgiveness of your sins. The second part of that is in that relationship, he sends you out to serve him. All right? And we see Jesus... In fact, take his disciples away from the busyness of ministry on multiple occasions. One of those is in Mark 6, 31, to just be away, be with him and rest. All right? And if you find yourself, here's something I want you guys to know. If you find yourself too busy to spend time with the Lord, that's how you know you have too much on your plate. All right? You see the early church in Acts 2.42 devote themselves to serving the Lord. Nope, that's not what it says. They devoted themselves to the word of God, studying the word of God, knowing the word of God, sitting under the teaching of the word of God. They devoted themselves to prayer, to spending time in fellowship, just talking with God. They spent their they, they were devoted to fellowship with other believers, doing what we're doing now, gathering together in large settings at the temple and in small settings in their homes while breaking bread or eating meals together and taking communion together. Those are what they devoted themselves to. And then when you see what came out of that, you saw unity, you saw generosity, you saw them spirit-filled, God just working. Everything that they did for Jesus came out of devoting themselves to being with Jesus. And if you find yourself in a place in life where you don't have time to pray, You don't have time to be in the word. You don't have time to go to church or be with other believers. I'm going to tell you right now, you're overcommitted. And you need to get rid of stuff 
And it's not those things. It's whatever else is pulling you away from God because everything else in your life, even things that you think are being good that you're devoting to, here's what's going to happen. They're going to suffer because you can't do anything apart from the Lord. Amen? And if you don't remove those things, Jesus might just do what happened to Paul here and force you in a timeout, knowing that that's where you're going to be best off, out of his care for you. Amen? All right. So God's using this, this whole imprisonment in a lot of different ways is what we see. It goes on in verse 4 and it says, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about this, about the man, let them bring charges against him. So we, we don't know for sure whether Festus had suspicions about the Jew, Jewish religious leader's true intent here. But regardless, Festus basically says, no, I'm not going to bring him down here. If you guys want to you know, bring any accusations against him, you're going to have to come up to Caesarea and bring him there. So it says in verse 6, and he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, and he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. A tribunal was kind of like a, a jury that would hear a case and, and make a decision. And it says, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Festus, he heads back to Caesarea. The Jewish religious leaders accept his invitation to come and make the journey there and bring these accusations they had against Paul before Festus. Verse 7, pointing out that again, even though they brought all these accusations, they had no proof. They, they didn't offer any evidence for anything. And in response to their accusations, Paul just simply continues to tell the truth. He's like, I didn't violate any of God's word. I didn't violate any Roman law. I didn't violate any of the rules of the temple. Verse 9, it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Because remember, he's a Roman citizen. So this is the right place for him to be questioned. It says to the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Or basically, I haven't done anything wrong. So why would I go back to Jerusalem? Verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them or no one should give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Festus, wanting to appease or remain in good standing with these Jews that he had just been assigned to oversee, he wants to at least offer their request up to Paul, asking him, Hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem and have these guys try you? And Paul basically, you know, kind of seeing right through what their real intent is, he's just like, no. And as a Roman citizen, he had this right to be, if he felt like he was being treated unfairly in like the judicial process, he could appeal to Caesar. It'd be like appealing to the Supreme Court in our country. Like, no, I, I, I see what's going on here, right? I've done nothing wrong. I'm kind of tired of being used as a political pawn between you guys that aren't ever making any decision on this case. So just go ahead and send me up to the, the high court 
in all in all, in 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 all let it be dealt with there all right then and, and it's important to basically point out here remember this is all part of god's plan right because what did we see a couple chapters ago where paul re, where god jesus when he appeared to him reiterated you're going to go to rome which he had already told paul he had put that on his heart several chapters ago when he was in the mission field you know, I need to go to Rome and preach the gospel there. And, and Jesus reiterated, this is still going to happen. So all of this is not by accident. All of this is working towards God's sovereign plan. And him appealing to Caesar, basically as a Roman citizen, Festus had no option but to let him do that. And again, none of this would have happened had Paul, if you guys remember last week, offered that bribe that Felix was looking for to release him. Remember, Felix kept him wanting him to pay a bribe so that he could release him. So if Paul would have presumptuously removed himself from this hard situation, just assuming like, well, it's hard. It's not good for me to be under. I'm just going to take myself out of it because there's an option right here. I can just pay this guy off or have my, my followers pay him off and I can get out of it. None of this would have happened. Him getting to Rome which was part of God's plan. God would have figured out another way to get him there, but he could have made it a lot harder than it had to be. And then these opportunities, he getting to share Jesus with people, which speaking of in the next verse, he's going to get to share Jesus with some other unbelievers here. It says in verse 13, it says, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now this would be King Herod Agrippa II that is coming to visit Festus here. Agrippa basically ruling what was referred to as a client kingdom of Rome to the northeast of Festus's province. Now, a client kingdom was basically an area that wasn't directly ruled or governed by Roman authorities, but it was still considered part of Rome's land. And they were just kind of set kind of like a puppet king over it who was expected to kind of do what they said. And they would... They would enjoy the perks of having an alliance with kind of the the known world power at that time now this king herod he's the last of the herods we see in the bible his great grandfather being herod the great who if you remember in matthew 2 tried to kill jesus as a baby his grandfather being herod antipas who beheaded john the baptist in mark 6 his father being agrippa the first who executed James and imprisoned Peter, hoping to execute him before God miraculously set him free in Acts 12. So he comes from a long line of anti-Christian people, okay? And then Bernice, being his sister, also historically was said to have an incestuous relationship with her brother, even though they weren't ever officially married. So these are sinners that need Jesus in their life that God has brought to him. Agrippa, also being known as an expert in Jewish customs, in religious matters, had been given authority by the emperor of Rome to kind of oversee Jerusalem and the temple and all the religious stuff going on there. So it says in verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. Or basically they wanted Festus to sentence Paul even before hearing his defense. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Or basically Roman law required a fair trial. Verse 17. So when they came together here, 
I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Or in essence, Festus was surprised to find out that the only thing that they really found Paul guilty of was that he talked about the resurrected Jesus too much. All right. This also showing us that Paul got an opportunity to share Jesus with Festus, right? Because he's talking about Jesus. So again, this is something that would not have happened had Paul presumptuously removed himself from this difficult situation. But him remaining in that trial allowed God to use him to continue to share the good news of Jesus with people that needed to hear it. And it says in verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow, said he. You will hear him. So even though King Agrippa had no authority over the case involving Paul, his knowledge of Jewish customs and their religion were of potential value to Festus in helping understand what is it exactly that the Jews have a problem with with this guy because I don't see anything a matter with him. And Festus, he couldn't find Paul guilty of anything deserving punishment. So in his mind, he really had no official accusation to send with him to Caesar, which would have been probably a, a kind of a, a frustrating thing because it's like, what am I supposed to do? Send this guy to the emperor and tell him, I don't really know why I'm sending him to you. You know, So this is kind of his thinking. And as such, Festus explains the case to Agrippa, who seems intrigued. He ends up wanting to talk to Paul himself, which Festus agrees to, which again now opens the door for Paul to share Jesus with Agrippa, who would be the third person of authority that God divinely orchestrated an opportunity for Paul to share the gospel with. Amen? Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Now, this wasn't just some small meeting between Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and Paul, but this is in the audience hall. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you've been here on one of our trips. This is a big, giant amphitheater. Like you think of those giant Roman amphitheaters, super tall, all the stairs. That's what this is. It's right by the ocean in Caesarea. Still there today. And you can see it. So this is a big event. They're calling all the muckety-mucks, all the, the, the soldiers of authority, all the people of wealth, like, uh, you know, basically status in the city to kind of come take part in this so they can kind of flaunt their status and their wealth amongst each other and kind of get the privilege of hearing this court case for their entertainment, all right? And they all think they're coming for that reason, but really, this is a divine appointment orchestrated by God so that Paul could have the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with all these people that needed to hear it. Amen? All right. Says then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him or basically I'm not sure what to even say he's guilty of. 
Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, or maybe you guys can find him guilty of something. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So again, Festus's hope in this trial was to figure out some crime that he could actually accuse Paul of when sending him to Caesar, which really shows us how above reproach Paul lived his life. Because as far as all the things Festus knew about him, he's like, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And even with these illicit accusations being made uh, from the Jews, he's like, I can't in good conscience say that he's guilty of these things because I don't see any evidence of it. And so best, you know, best he could tell, he's completely innocent. Now, that finishes up the chapter, but here's the point that I kind of want to end on because this whole ordeal with Paul being imprisoned by the Romans, we've seen God, throughout this whole thing, we've seen God divinely give him opportunity after opportunity to basically share Jesus Christ with people that needed to hear it so they could be forgiven of their sin and saved. But it was also Paul that worked hand in hand with God and was able to see those opportunities and take advantage of them. And what, what I, you know, I've said before, I would consider less than desirable circumstances as he was imprisoned by the Romans that could have more than distracted him or could have been a very big distraction that helped or that would have led to him missing out on those opportunities because he's so focused on things that weren't going the way he would like them to go in his life. And I believe Paul's proper perspective on this situation, which came from his focus being on the Lord in his word, specifically the promises he made to him, is what allowed God or Paul to see those opportunities or what God was actually wanting to do in his life and not miss out on those or be focused on the adversity or the things that he didn't understand to such a degree that he's not seeing these opportunities God is giving right in front of him. And so too with us every day, every day, every single one of you that is a follower of Jesus Christ is given opportunity after opportunity to use your words, to use your actions, to use your choices to reveal God to people. Whether that's your kids, your spouse, your coworkers, It's never that the opportunities aren't there, all right? But rather, the question is, is our focus in the right place? Are we viewing our circumstances from the right perspective, that being God's perspective, like Paul, so we see those opportunities for what they are. So we see God and we see what he's wanting to do in you and what he's wanting to do through you. Because it's really easy, if you're anything like me, to let my focus drift everywhere but God. To get consumed in the busyness of life that we so like just thrive in as Americans. I don't know if thrive is the right word, but we just busy ourselves with so much stuff. And my flesh has this tendency to just naturally gravitate to what I want to do or what I think is best or what feels the best for me. And when I'm in a situation like Paul where it doesn't feel good. I don't like what's happening. Why is this happening to me? I get focused on that, on my circumstances that I don't like, that I wish would change, trying to get myself out of them. But my focus is everywhere else but on God. And I completely miss out on what God wants to be doing in me, 
in through me in those circumstances, not because of him, not because it's not obvious, but simply because I'm not looking. I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm looking in the wrong place. I read this quote by Elizabeth Elliot that really made me think of this. She said, a whole lot of what we call struggling in life is simply delayed obedience. See, my focus isn't on God. Often my life feels like a struggle. And really, if I just get my focus back on him, then I'd see what he wants me to be doing in the midst of whatever those circumstances or what feels like a struggle is, and it wouldn't feel like a struggle. I'd be like, Paul, instead of focusing on the fact that I'm imprisoned, I don't have the freedom I want, I can't go where I want. Instead, I'm just focused on, all right, the Lord said this is good. He said he's using me. He said he's got work for me to do. I can just trust this, even if I don't understand this. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. God wants me to do this. God's doing this in me. He's using the struggle to actually build this in me. And you you see it from the right perspective and it totally changes things. And then as soon as you see it from the right perspective, it doesn't feel like a struggle anymore. Because you actually see this not being wasted. God's doing everything he said he would do. It's actually quite exciting, even if it is uncomfortable. And there's a great example of this with the people of God in Haggai 1. And I'm going to end on this chapter as the worship team comes up. I'm just going to read through it and kind of point some things out to you. So this is Haggai chapter 1. The Israelites, they were, they, if you guys remember, I'm going to sum up a lot of the Old Testament. Basically, God's people like us, they, they love God, they worship God. He saves them miraculously, brings them out of Egypt. They follow God and they have this constant battle of like when things are good, they forget about God. Then when they get bad, they go back to God and it's a seesaw battle and eventually it gets so bad. They're not looking for God anymore. They completely forgot him. And he's like, okay, I'm going to let you be taken into captivity as slaves to Babylon for 70 years. And after that, you're going to come to this place of repentance. You're going to come back to me and I'm going to restore you back to the promised land. So they're back in that promised land, all right? He's restored them. And this is where we're at in Haggai chapter one. And it says in verse two, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now understand, the house of the Lord, before Jesus had come and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and allow us to have a relationship with God where he comes into us, his Holy Spirit resides in us, and we have this close fellowship. Before that, that type of relationship with God didn't exist back then. God had his people, but his presence would dwell in this super holy place. Nobody was allowed to go into us at the priest once a year after doing all the sanctification process in the temple. But the temple is where they would go to meet with God. They'd go there to worship God, They'd go there to do sacrifices to atone or cover over their sins so they could be right with God. That was the primary focus, just like it is now. God wanted a close relationship with them. That's where they go. So when it says here, they've been brought back into their land and they have this mentality of like, oh, we'll get around to rebuilding the temple later. In essence, what they're saying is like, I don't have time for God right now. There's other things that I want to be doing, okay? And then it goes on to tell us what those other things are. It says in verse 3, Then the Lord sent his this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? Or in essence, the people were more about their own comfort and, and doing what they felt was best for them instead of making their relationship with God 
the priority. And so they were completely lost as to what God really wanted them to be doing because of that. And it goes on to say in verse five, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. He's trying to help them understand. He's like, look at your life. You're spending all this time trying to better it. But is it better? You're spending all this time to do these things to make yourself happy and content. But you're still discontent. You're dissatisfied. You never have enough. Don't you see that the things you're doing aren't getting you what you think you're going to get from them? They're not satisfying you. They're not bringing you contentment. Your your best efforts to do what you think's best are failing you. That being how life can feel when our focus isn't on the Lord and we're not in his will. We're discontent. We're dissatisfied. Nothing we're trying to do is, is accomplishing what we think it should be accomplishing. We're not getting to that destination we're trying to desperately get to. That's what it feels like. And he goes on to say, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Or the ESV says, consider your ways. Look at your life. Is your focus in the right place? He goes on to say, now go up to the hills. Bring down timber and rebuild my house. That's what he wanted them to do. Come back to your first love. Then I will take pleasure in it. And be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, said the Lord of heaven's armies. While all of you are busy building your own fine houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock to ruin Everything you've worked so hard to get. Your life, it's dry, it's barren, and it's poor because your focus is wrong. You forgot your first love. And I'm purposely letting it be like this because I want you to come back to me. That's where you need to be. Then you'll see truly what it is I want you to be doing for me, and you'll be blessed. Everything you're looking for that you're trying to accomplish in these other things you're doing, you're going to find it in me, in my will for you, that's always good, pleasing, and perfect. And it says in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people the message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. They began to work on the house of their God, the Lord of heaven's armies. So as soon as they listened to God and heard what he said, their focus got back on him. They realized he's with us. And then they were enthused. They got excited. Oh, there's God. I see him now. I see what he wants me to be doing now. We need to be building his house. We need to be investing in our first love. We need to get back to our relationship with. This is revival. They were revived. 
And really what I sensed as I was going through Paul's life and just being encouraged like, man, that's what I want for my life, Lord. I want to see all those opportunities you're giving me. I want to believe in your promises, whether I understand it or not, and just see that you're working. You're there. You've got more work to do. I don't want to miss out on that. That's exciting. That's the kind of life that he intends for every single one of us to place our faith in him. And I just know my tendency to get so caught up in just the busyness of life that I'm completely not seeing him. I'm not seeing those opportunities. I'm not seeing what he's wanting to do in that difficult situation. And it's not because he's not there. It's not because he's not wanting to do great things. It's because my focus is off. And what it comes down to is if that's where we find ourselves and we find ourselves discontent, we find our lives feel like that quote by Elizabeth Elliot that it's just this, like, what is going on? I'm struggling. I feel dry in my walk with the Lord. I feel poor. It's just going back to your first love. It's your devotion. What are you devoted to? Be devoted to Jesus. Be devoted to his word. Be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to his people. And if you can't, because you're too busy, get rid of whatever is making you busy. Because again, whatever that is, even good things, like responsibilities, like our kids and our spouses, they're going to suffer from us trying to be parents or spouses if Jesus isn't the center of our devotion. Because we won't be able to be the way he wants us to be. So they can be blessed. So we can be blessed. He always needs to be the center of our devotion. So that's what we're going to do as we close up today. We're just going to make sure that our focus is in the right place in our lives. We're going to consider our ways. We're going to have communion up here. And communion is something we're to do in remembrance of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And it's a great time just to come before the Lord before you take that bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood that paid the price for your sins. To just, Lord, am I at that place when you first saved me where I was excited? I was so just thankful for what you did for me. I was so excited just to, I I didn't even know anything, but I'm just like, I just want Jesus I want whatever he wants for me. Am I there? Because that's where you're always supposed to be. That's where we're always supposed to be. Or am I struggling? Am I discontent? Am I caught up in my circumstances and what I don't like? Am I, am I feeling dry in my walk with the Lord? And just consider your ways. Think about where your focus is. Are you too overwhelmed and busy with a bunch of stuff that nowhere is near important is your relationship with God that he was willing to let his one and only son die so that you could have. That is his priority with you over anything else. And you can't do anything else unless you're connected to the vine. And if there's stuff the Lord's putting on your heart that isn't right in your life, that's getting in between you and Jesus, that you've created space, just lay it before him at the altar. Just give it back. Say, Lord, you're just showing me once again what you've shown me all along is that you're the better thing. You're always the best thing. I'm sorry that I got distracted again. I'm so thankful that you're so good to always reel me back in when I drift off. You are that good shepherd that goes and gets the sheep, brings them back in their place of safety. 
That's between you and the Lord. And if you're somebody here today that hasn't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're coming here today and you would say, yeah, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have that relationship with God. That's why the Lord brought you here today. Because Jesus died for your sins as well. Basically, sin is what separates us from God because he's perfectly right. And we're not. Every one of us is, should be honest enough to say that we're not perfectly right. We have bad motives. We lie. Maybe we've never killed someone. But there's no, no curve on the scale of sin. If you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of breaking all sins. And it separates you from God because he's perfectly right. And he can't be in the presence of somebody that's imperfect without justly dealing with that sin. So him knowing that you couldn't be right and have a relationship with him, which he created you to do, sent his son, who was God in the flesh, to live a perfect sinless life on this earth so that he could die in my place and in your place and take the just price that our sins deserve, that being death, upon himself so that we could be forgiven. Best trade-off you'll ever make in your life. You give God your you give Jesus your sin and you take his righteousness. You are right before God no matter what you've done. Amen. Yeah. And through that gift of righteousness, you've been saved. You've been forgiven of every sin you've ever done, every sin you could ever do. You've been made right in God's eyes because he sees his son when he sees you. It's not based on your efforts or anything you do because you can never do enough. But it's based on Jesus. So you can be 100% confident in that. And God comes into your life. He sends his spirit inside of you to open your eyes and help you see what's right and what's wrong according to his word. And then to help you live in that rightness so you experience blessing or happiness, which we're all searching for in this world. But we look for it in all the wrong places. It can only be found in the Lord and what he has for you. And that is a gift available for whoever wants it. So we're going to have our prayer team around the room. And if that's you today, come up, get prayer, receive the Lord today. And for the rest of us, let's just consider our ways. Make sure we're right, that our focus is in the right place like Paul. We're not distracted by things we don't understand. We're not consumed with just things at the end of the day that we can just trust God to take care of. That we're devoted to him first and foremost. So we don't miss out on all the things he wants to be doing in and through us in our lives. Amen. Lord God. Lord, I, I, I remember you speaking to me last year as I was just serving you from a place of exhaustion, just busying myself with stuff. And you so clearly just said, I never asked you to overwhelm yourself, to do all these things. It's, they're good things you want to do, but they're not all for you. You're too busy to even just spend time with me and that's what I want first and foremost Lord and I believe you're saying that to people today if there's stuff in our lives that's not allowing us to devote ourselves to you to be with our first love Lord I pray you show us those things so we can set them aside knowing that what you have for us is so much better that we can trust those things to you you can take care of them way better than we can anyways. And for those that have come here today seeking answers, seeking truth, 
their lives feel like a struggle and they're looking for a way to to be free of that lord i i pray today would be the day of salvation for them they'd find everything they're looking for in you just as we have in jesus name amen